Good morning. <clears throat> Receive now the word of the Lord. Isaiah 58, 6 through 9. Is not this the fast that I chose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover them, and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call out, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, here I am. Thanks, Ken. Let's pray together. Faithful and holy God, this is your moment to speak through your scriptures as you see fit. We cannot control what you want to say. Help us hear in the deepest part of our hearts your call to justice from your word. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. So I took my daughter Hadley to the YMCA with me on Friday. That's kind of our routine. We drop Will off at school. We go to the Y. And we love our YMCA. We walk in there and it just feels like home. And so we go over to child care And I drop Hadley off, right? Like we walk in through the door and there's the check-in counter. So I'm signing her in. And uh, Shirley, who's always there on Fridays, is there to greet us. And as I'm signing her in, Shirley opens the door. And I look up and before I know it, Hadley has walked into childcare. She started to make the turn toward her little, little kid area. And she doesn't even look over her shoulder. Like she's rolling, right? I love that. And for many of us, that may be how you feel about today's subject, about justice. For many of us, it's familiar territory. You've studied it, you've looked at it, uh, maybe you went to a Christian school and it's something that you talked about. And there are many of us that it'll just, it'll feel very effortless to talk about justice, and that's great. There are those of us that it will not feel that way. Justice is a loaded term in many circles of the church. It has political connotations. It feels too heavy. It feels too... Why why does the church need to be involved in that business? I remember at my former church, uh, after the Trayvon Martin shooting, I offered a prayer for that young man and for his family. And I had a gentleman come up to me and just say, you know what, I, I don't think we should talk about things like that at church. That's fine if you believe that. But I think the witness of our scriptures is different. And so we're going to get into that today. We are also going to get into how this completely unplanned friendship with Paradise Baptist Church came to be and how we're going to enter into that because it marries so well with this subject. And in the providence of God, not my planning, justice happens to be the sermon topic before we go to be with our friends at Paradise Baptist Church. I could never have planned that. A year ago this week, my family and I arrived here and I could not have planned when we landed here that a year later we would be entering into some thing, some friendship, some relationship with a historically African-American congregation in Rainier Beach. I couldn't have found Rainier Beach on a map when we first moved here. I believe that this is what God is moving us toward. And if you disagree with me, that's okay. But I want to offer one more note before we get into the text. I believe this is the work of God to pull this together in part 
because of the opposition I have sensed, not from anybody in particular, but the opposition that I believe the enemy is throwing up at our church right now. We've tried to get things rolling like small groups. We've tried to help train our kids leaders, all kinds of things. And just in various ways from where I've sit, I have seen resistance from what I believe is the enemy's work. And I actually believe that's a sign that we're on the right track. Because the enemy wants to disrupt what the church is trying to be about when it's doing what it's called to do. So if you've observed something like that, you're not crazy, I'm seeing it too. And I think that's even more reason for us to step into this subject today. But I want to acknowledge from the get-go that this is a complicated subject. I've actually preached entire sermon series on justice. So to try to cram it into one day feels a little forced. But it's appropriate for where we are today. I want to offer an operating definition of justice as we get started. And this is going to follow along with our constant booklet, which you're welcome to pick one up if you don't have one. It'll also follow with uh, the outline in your bulletin. Justice, and this comes from a theologian named Nicholas Volterstorff. Biblical justice is treating other people the way God thinks they deserve to be treated. Treating other people the way God thinks they deserve to be treated. And the way that we'll abbreviate that claim this morning is at the top of your bulletin, justice is relationships made right. Relationships made right. Now, before we get into theology and Bible, I just, everybody pause with me for a moment. Close your eyes and picture a broken relationship in your life. Picture someone you know personally. You love them or you can't stand them, and your relationship with them you would categorize as broken. And now picture a place in our community where relationships are broken. Maybe it's your office where there's no trust. Maybe it's at your kid's school where there are these different families and factions fighting over things. And now I want you to back up the lens just a little bit more and picture our world. Picture places of deep brokenness between races, between different cultures, between different religions. And now picture those things being restored. As we open our eyes, I invite you to hear this good news from our scriptures. Jesus unites what the world divides. Jesus unites what the world divides divides. Now let's talk about where we see that. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah 58. Uh, This morning's outline is really simple. It goes Isaiah, Jesus, Isaiah. So you got three choices about where we are. Right now we're in Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet. He had a job that nobody wanted, nobody envied, to tell the people of God, you've missed it. You've missed the mark. Isaiah had to tell his people hard things about their life together. And in this particular chapter of Isaiah, he is talking about their call to be a just people. And as we've talked about all throughout this sermon series, this is a product of the fall. This is a product of Genesis 3, when women and men said to God, we're going to go our own way, we've got this covered, and we totally don't. So this is where we're going with this. Israel's approach to their way of life is broken. And later in Isaiah 58, which Ken read for us, the answer to this particular part of their challenge is the call to justice. That's where we're headed, but we've got to figure out where it starts. So turn with me to Isaiah 58. I'm going to start reading in verse 2. This is the prophet's word to the people of Israel. Day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God, quoting the people. Why do we fast, but you do not see? 
Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? Look, you serve your own interest on your fast day. You oppress all your workers. As if they were a nation that practiced righteousness. What the prophet is saying is, Israel, you think you're okay with God. You think you're fine. You're not. And this leads them to the practice of false humility. Their hearts are actually kind of dragged into the limelight in verse 3. The question they ask, which they think is rhetorical, why do we fast, God, but you do not see us? That's not a very humble question. They're doing their religious activities purely for show. They're presuming their own innocence. They're presuming that by doing religious things, they are right with God. And this all reeks of falsehood. That's what the prophet is saying to them. And we need to connect this text to our own lives in a way that's not going to be very comfortable. Israel is guilty of the false humility of presumed innocence. So is the majority white church. And I include myself in that. We are guilty of presumed innocence when it comes to racial reconciliation. Religiosity under the pretext of false humility leads to both spiritual impotence and, according to the text, a disconnect with the heart of God. If you continue on in verse 4, God says this, Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. In other words, keep up your appearances, keep up your sham religion, and you, Israel, will find yourselves ineffective, not well regarded by your peers, and drifting into the wilderness while God's way forward lies in wait for you to discover it. Our big idea for this section goes like this. Hiding behind religion will not release us from the gospel's call to justice. The gospel in and of itself is a work of justice. It is Jesus choosing to be our justice, to be our righteousness, to set things right with his Father on our behalf. And this has everything to do with our journey to Paradise Baptist Church. It is an opportunity to connect with the work of justice because it's a way for us to pull apart some of that falsehood that the Israelites were under that we can somehow opt ourselves out of the conversation around reconciliation, that somehow we've managed to avoid being a part of that, that mostly white churches don't really need to be involved in this kind of thing. We are Israel. We have assumed our innocence. Becoming friends with Paradise Baptist Church is not going to solve everything, and we really shouldn't hope for it to either because that's not the gospel. The gospel still covers over us as we enter into this. We are right with Jesus Christ if you follow him, if you call him Lord. He has touched your life. He has changed this place. He has changed my life. That ain't changing. But the way that we engage with the work of justice, which Jesus is all about in our daily lives, has everything to do with why we go to paradise. Why should that matter? Because history has taught us time and time again that contact reduces conflict. Contact reduces conflict. I'm borrowing that from another sermon I listened to on this this week. Contact with people of, ever, of other tribe, tongue, and nations helps us better engage with those groups that we would call other and not get into conflict or understand one another better so the conflict doesn't have to happen. Over time, I hope we grow a friendship with Paradise Baptist. I don't know. I hope it's a great experience. I'm, I'm hoping they can come and worship with us and we can do a great meal for them. But my hope is that we will kind of do what Naomi and Ruth did. That as they entered into that powerful relationship that we talked about in the covenant sermon, that Naomi said to Ruth, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. That we will say to the people of Rainier Beach, your pain is our pain. Your joy is our joy. We are in this with you. We are together. I believe that the heart of this church very much desires to love and serve the east side. And I think 
as we enter into this relationship with Paradise Baptist, we will start to see how we're called to love Rainier Beach too. Jesus unites what the world divides. Jesus unites what the world divides. When we go and worship with brothers and sisters from a totally different cultural background, we are helping to form this new community, this new expression of God's kingdom so that people in our lives look in and go, oh my gosh, the Christians worship together and they don't all look the same. And the Christians talk to each other about race and it's not weird. That's amazing. What an incredible thing. That's part of the vision of why we are doing this, why we are going down to Paradise Baptist. It's a work of justice. So that's creation and disruption. Now let's turn our attention to hope. This is relationships made right by Jesus. Justice is treating people the way God thinks they deserve to be treated. It's about relationships made right. It calls us to admit that for many of us, we've lived in ways that have been ignorant to that call to justice, just like the people of Israel. And as always... Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Our hope is in the fullness of life that he offers to us, that he unites what the world divides, and that that is an expression of the gospel. As we've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, as we've been given right relationship with God, so can we then go and express right relationship with others, with people that we may never come into contact with otherwise. We're going to see this play out uh, really quickly in some snapshots of Jesus' relationship with Peter. So remember our super simple outline, Isaiah, Jesus, Isaiah. Guess which part we're in right now? Let's talk about Jesus and Peter and their relationship. Here's why Peter's relationship with Jesus reflects justice. Peter does not get what he deserves. He gets the opposite, which is what we get too in Jesus Christ. I'm going to mention some passages really briefly, and then we'll kind of get through this part and move back to Isaiah. Peter is called out of really humble circumstances to follow Jesus. If you remember his calling, he's fishing. He's with his brother Andrew. There was nothing glamorous or high profile about Peter. If Jesus was thinking through this from a strategic perspective, like how to build his religion out, he would not have sought out Peter. Peter was a nobody. And so for Jesus to reach out to him in and of itself is an act of justice. He's treating Peter like God thinks Peter deserves to be treated. And then in Matthew 16, Peter has this powerful moment before all the other disciples. Jesus asked the question, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, if we were keeping score, if we were talking about religion and not about the gospel, Peter's scorecard would be like, boom, like he's bowling 200, like he's covered. But then all this goes away. All of Peter's wins are vacated when he denies Jesus in Matthew 26. Jesus has been arrested. Remember, the disciples scatter. They run away. Peter tries to break away multiple times from his connection to Jesus. And so in a world of checks and balances, of keeping a ledger, of keeping religion, Peter's done. He's got nothing. He has no behavior on which to base his approval by Jesus Christ before, and he's got nothing to look forward to at all. Taking the sum total of Peter's life into account, he is out. He denies the leader of his faith, but that's why grace changes everything. That's why the gospel is so good. Why Jesus' justice is so different, because it transforms. It transforms hearts. It transforms entire systems and cultures. Because Jesus' commitment to justice is perfect, people like Peter, people like me, people like you get what we do not deserve. We get life, we get hope, we get freedom. How do we know this? Because the way Peter and Jesus talk to one another after Jesus' resurrection, this happens in John 21. There's this beautiful back and forth between Peter 
in Jesus. Jesus has been raised from the dead, so imagine that conversation. And he says to Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yeah, yeah, sure, of course, I love you. How are you back from the dead? And so they go back and forth, and finally Peter admits. He, there's this moment, I think, where he just kind of turns the page and he says, yeah, I get it. And so what does Jesus say to him? He doesn't just pat him on the head. He gives him a mission. His mission is twofold. Feed my sheep and follow me. And that connects actually very powerfully to justice. We see this come up again in Acts chapter 15. I won't ask you to turn there. I'll just summarize it briefly. Acts 15 is the Jerusalem council. We talked about this during our Acts sermon series. It's when all the leaders of the early church got together and wrestled with different things that were coming up in the life of the church, different theological issues. And so in this moment in Acts 15... Peter is in the conversation when a group of leaders say, hey, we've got this group of people over here. They don't look like us. They don't act like us. They don't worship like us. Should we bring them in or should we tell them, no, they can't play in our sandbox? And that's the predominantly Jewish church saying to Gentile Christians, like, we don't know what to do with you. Does that sound familiar? And the church leadership is called by Peter in Acts 15 to the work of justice. Peter says this, God has made no distinction between them and us. We will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Level ground at the foot of the cross. No Gentile, no Jew is in a better position to come to Jesus Christ at all. Peter is saying to the people he serves, God is just, and he wants to treat the Gentiles the way he thinks the Gentiles deserve to be treated. Bring them in. Bring them into the family. Jesus unites what the world divides. Peter, go feed my sheep. Peter, go follow me into service. Go unite what the world divides. And the early church was built on that. And that's why I think the church's sort of rediscovery of our calling to justice is actually in line with how we were built from the beginning. Peter was out. He had not earned his place. And then Jesus restores him. And the amazing thing is that Jesus does that for anybody who calls on him. Anybody. We are all like Peter. We're desperate to be a part of something good, something life-giving, like what Jesus is doing, and we don't get what we deserve. We're reconciled. We get grace. We get a relationship made right. So I'll just pause this for just a moment and give us a chance to reflect. Who is like Peter in your life? Who would you say is out? Like they have burned every bridge. They have killed every favor. You got nothing left to give to them. What would reconciliation with that person look like? Who's out? Who's Peter? Who is someone in your world that just doesn't fit? Or maybe it's a whole group of people. I don't know. But that's something worth considering in light of the gospel. So relationships are made right through Jesus' restoration. His justice makes things right. And now we're jumping back into Isaiah. This is culmination. His justice makes all people, communities, and societies right with him. Turn back with me to Isaiah 58, the section that Ken read for us. I'm going to highlight uh, 7 through 10. And this is God's call to justice. This is what the people of Israel were missing, this vision that they could be a part of, but they weren't. This is what God says. Is it not, is your calling not, to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover them, and not to hide yourself from your own kin, then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. 
If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaker of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom like the noonday. It's a beautiful series of images, but it's really challenging. First, this challenge is very personal. I overly highlighted the your pronouns in verses 7 and 8. Maybe you heard that. The prophet describes sharing bread, your bread, with the hungry. And to bring homeless poor into your house, my house. This is personal. This is not abstract. Why can Jesus even make this claim on his people? Because in Jesus Christ, we don't pursue altruism. We pursue stewardship. We say, this isn't my bread. This isn't my house. This isn't my stuff. This has been given to me. And the master says, I got to go use it this way. That's what I'm going to do. The next time you buy a loaf of bread, think about whose bread that is. And who can share in that bread? The next time you walk into the doorway of your house, whose house is that? Who's called to be sharing in the fellowship that you provide at your home? This is how God uses stuff, stuff that we think we own, to, prevent, to keep us from thinking that we really own it. A way to keep our stuff from owning us. The scriptures are how we know how God thinks other people deserve to be treated. That may have been the question you've been thinking about as I've mentioned that definition of justice. Treating other people the way God thinks we deserve to be treated, how do we know that? It's all through the scriptures. Because every time God talks about this justice in the scriptures, it's always really uncomfortable. It's always something I'm probably not doing very well. It's always calling me to a higher bar, a higher standard. And speaking of discomfort, if you're uncomfortable about going to work at worship at a historically African-American congregation next week, that is all right. There are going to be plenty of us that are not comfortable with this. I mean, think about it. You've got great reason to be uncomfortable. There's going to be singing and dancing and clapping, and there's going to be a meal. That just sounds horrible. It's going to be like a party. It's going to be incredible. I would argue that what we're going to experience next week isn't just going to fill our hearts and our souls for the week ahead. It's going to fill us for the month ahead. It's going to get you through Christmas. It's going to be amazing. And that's because God's justice is not just for individual people. It's for communities. And the community at Paradise Baptist Church is going to understand God's narrative of justice through a different lens than a predominantly white church will. And we need to hear that. Verses 8 through 10 of this Isaiah passage talk about how light breaks forth. Lights gathered together create more light. When I wake up in the morning in my house, I'm usually the first one up, and so I try to fumble around using my phone, using like one itty-bitty little light to find things. It's horribly ineffective. It's comical. When I actually turn on other lights, I can find my toothbrush. God calls us to unite with other lights Places like Missionary Baptist, or Paradise Missionary Baptist Church that know the light of Jesus Christ to better express the light to our whole world. And people are going to look and they're going to go, you know what? Christians are worshiping together. Christians are talking about race together. Isn't that interesting? And there will be an even greater light that comes out because of that. Communities get to experience revival and renewal through this great work of justice from Jesus Christ. So to wrap up, Biblical justice, treating, God's people, treating people the way God thinks they deserve to be treated. Justice is relationships made right. Jesus unites what the world divides. And contact reduces conflict. 
And we're going to step into this making of right relationship by going and worshiping at Paradise Baptist Church. Please do come for worship and the meal. There ain't no Seahawks on. They're on a Monday night. You're fine. There's so much more to say about justice than just what we talked about today. But I want to offer two encouragements, and then I'm going to invite Ken to come up here. There's an article from Tim Keller, the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, at the welcome table that's all about this subject. Does a far better job of talking about the church's call to racial reconciliation than I ever could. I actually debated just standing up here and reading it because it's that good. Please grab a copy. I'll post a copy later on on our Facebook page. Please read that. Please read through Isaiah 58 this week. I'm going to read it every day this week to try to pray and prepare my heart for worship. And then another way that we're going to prepare is to pray together through a guided time of reflection, of confession and lament and repentance. And for that, I'm going to invite Ken, our family ministries director up here, to lead us through this time. Church, it is our prayer this morning that we would be a people who seek after God's justice. So as Pastor Travis has defined for us this morning, God's justice means caring, loving, and treating all people as God thinks that they should be treated. Unfortunately, like the Israelites that Isaiah was speaking to of the Old Testament, we, the church, also deserve this prophetic rebuke of the prophets. One of those prophets, Amos, says uh, that, but you have turned justice into poison, the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. We are guilty of this. We are guilty of of turning justice into poison and setting aside righteousness for what's comfortable for us. Israel fell short of God's justice, and all too often, I fall short of God's justice, and we fall short of God's justice. So I ask that you'd stand with me this morning, and that you'd engage with me in the practice that our church traditionally has been practicing for hundreds of years. We are going to pray aloud together. As a community lifting our voices, we are going to speak in a unified voice to confess our sins, to receive the assuredness of Jesus Christ, and then intercess on behalf of the injustice in our world. So join with me in this prayer by following along uh, with words on the screen and reading aloud uh, the bolded white text. Holy God, you called all that is into being and offered humanity life in all its fullness. Yet we have allowed good relationships to be broken. We have become distant from you and our neighbor. Lord, have mercy. At times, we have failed to speak out for justice, leaving the voiceless without an advocate. Christ, have mercy. To all who fall short of God's glory, you offer pardon and peace. Lord, have mercy. God is just and forgiving. God receives us as we are, lifts us up, and calls us again to be people upholding justice and peace. Receive God's pardon. Receive God's peace, knowing that all sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God. Now we are going to pray a prayer of reconciliation. Join me in this now. Across the barriers that divide race from race, reconcile us, O Lord Christ, by your cross. 
Across the barriers that divide rich from poor, reconcile us, O Christ, by your cross. Across the barriers that divide people of different cultures, reconcile us, O Christ, by your cross. Across the barriers that divide Christians, reconcile us, O Christ, by your cross. Across the barriers that divide men and women, young and old, reconcile us, O Christ, by your cross. Lord, our God, confront us, O Christ, with the hidden prejudices and fears that deny us and betray our prayers. Enable us to see the cause of strife. Remove from us all senses of superiority. Teach us to grow in unity with all God's children. Lord our God, you have revealed yourself as one who wishes to bring about justice and true peace among all your people. In a world that looks away from injustice, you cast your eyes on the destitute, the poor, and the wronged. You have called us to follow you. May we be these people. I ask that you would let those words just ruminate in your heart. We're going to take 20 seconds, 30 seconds. Just think, reflect on the words that we prayed together and the voice that we've lifted up together. 